0: Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 20. We begin a new series this morning on the Ten Commandments, and it's going to be a little different than our normal series. If you've been a part of our church, you know that we kind of work our way through books of the Bible, kind of one section at a time. Um, We're going to be taking one command per week and explaining it in its context, in its overall context in redemptive history. And then also, we're going to have to, of course, look at some other passages, so we may do a little more jumping around than we normally do, but I think it'll make sense and be helpful once we get into it. There's a church in downtown Los Angeles. Actually, it's in right in the heart of Hollywood. In fact, it, it's pretty much under the shadow of the big Hollywood sign. If you've been to Hollywood, you've seen the big sign on the mountain. And uh, This is church. The church is led by a, a teaching pastor, a senior pastor who is uh, pretty much the most ordinary guy that you might ever encounter. He's got just a basic sort of military-style haircut, um, he has no tattoos, no piercings. He wears no bling. In fact, every Sunday pretty much wears a button-down blue shirt and dark blue jeans. Not even skinny jeans, just regular old Levi's. He's just, a, just an ordinary, normal guy. Uh, got a Ph.D. from Wheaton, which is a conservative school in the, in the Midwest. And, um, and the services that he leads and they're just normal, uh, uncreative services. They spend time uh, worshiping together in song spend time in catechism, uh, celebrate together the Lord's table. Uh, they uh, may recite a psalm or two together. And, and then they, he, he preaches from the Bible uh, a 35 to 50-minute message, just sort of works his way through the text of Scripture section by section. Again, so it's really nothing creative about it. And yet, in the middle of Hollywood, every single week, this church is filled with uh, creatives Artists, DJs, uh, professional athletes, songwriters, uh, millennials of every sort of stripe and background and color. People come out uh, from all over to, to, and mostly from Hollywood, but to be part of this worship service. So you might even catch a celebrity there. Uh, Joe Jonas will show up sometimes, Demi Lovato, Justin Bieber. And so this has kind of sparked a lot of curiosity like, what in the world is going on at this church that Would attract people from all different backgrounds. In fact, it's such a strange phenomenon that one uh, secular journalist decided to investigate herself. She couldn't understand. Why are people gathering to listen to a message from an old book and sing songs about a God they can't see? So she visited herself. And here's what she said after her first visit. She said, "...it was packed with chic young musicians." Actors, creatives, celebrities. Beneath the church's Instagrammable exterior, however, lies a conservative ethos. non-believers are going to hell. Abortion is a sin. Sex is only acceptable after marriage. And homosexuality is forget, for, forbidden. How, in famously liberal Hollywood, she asks, and among statistically progressive millennials, has good old-fashioned evangelism gained such popularity?" Now, if you talk with the pastor himself, his name's Jeremy, again, very unassuming guy, um, he would say people are desperate for substance. People are desperate for something that's real. This whole notion that, that there is no such thing as right or wrong, it's all up to our subjective opinion, it's actually wearing thin on people. It's not helping people. It's hurting people. People are looking for something authoritative, something that can be trusted He goes on to say people don't want a sentimental Santa Claus God who wants to sprinkle them with religious fairy dust. People want something more. A few years ago, a Newsweek article concluded this. There is a deep, vexing national anxiety about the nagging sense that unlimited moral freedom and rampaging materialism yield only greater hungers and lonelier nights. There's a sense in which we're starting to realize this whole postmodern way of thinking. Postmodernity began in the late 1960s and you know it means a whole bunch of different things now. But this idea that there is no right and wrong, that we each have, quote, our own truth, um, that we can't say uh, about another person that, that someone should or shouldn't do something, this idea that we should reject all authority, all of these things actually lead to confusion, frustration emptiness, broken relationships, and broken lives. And don't we see that even now in our world? People determining how to appreciate and value someone based on their own standards, doing what's right and wrong in their own eyes, and it leads to abject brokenness. Never before, I suppose, has there been such a great chasm between what we think we want and what we really, truly need. We can't stand the idea of moral absolutes on one hand, but we're actually desperate for true truth. It was with that sort of idea in mind that a few weeks ago or months ago, I decided to preach through the Ten Commandments in a series I'm calling Handwritten by God. Uh, The title, uh, as you may know, comes from Exodus 31, which says that the commandments were written with the finger of God. Now, of course, we know God is spirit. He doesn't have hands and feet and fingers uh, per se. But it just helps to us to understand how personally involved God was in the transmission of these commandments. They were written by the finger of God, we're told. That would have been interesting, I thought, I think, to see what God's handwriting is like, wouldn't it? I mean, was it, was it neat like a, an elementary school teacher or messy like a doctor's? Um, I guess it would be the ultimate justification for messy handwriting, right? If we say, well, God's handwriting was messy as well. We don't know what it was like. God's handwriting, but we do know that these are His, His words spoken from a smoking mountain. They were engraved on two stone tablets. It's fair to assume there were perhaps five uh, commands on each tablet. We don't know that for sure. They were, they were kept in the most famous of all boxes, the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen uh, the Indiana Jones uh, series movies, then you, you know you have an idea. You can picture what that's like. These words on the stone tablets written by the finger of God or what we're going to study for the next 10 weeks. So what we're going to do is we'll read through, we'll kind of build each week on, we'll start with Exodus 20 verse 1 each week and, and read the Ten Commandments, so hopefully they'll be ingrained in our, our mind. This morning I want to read, start by reading verses 1 through 3 of Exodus 20. The Word of the Lord reads this way, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me now in that that first phrase is supremely important where god says i am the lord your god i brought you out of the land of egypt this is foundational for us to understanding the 10 commandments when we talk about the 10 commandments this is not just a set of sort of rules dropped out of heaven that someone stumbled upon under a rock These are not arbitrary commands that appear uh, without context. These are commands given to a specific people in the context of a relationship. We might call them uh, relationship requirements. That's why I gave the sermon this title. In fact, the people of Israel, now they they would sometimes refer to the Ten Commandments, the the law as the Ten Words, going back to the Hebrew. Uh, But often they actually refer to them as simply the covenant. This is, these, are, these are commandments that, that come to us in the context of a covenant. Now, a covenant represents a binding agreement uh, between two parties. The closest we have is, is pro, I don't know, probably a contract, although that really doesn't capture the full essence of it. A covenant was weightier than a promise. It was more serious than a verbal agreement, stronger than a contract. A covenant was this binding promise that was confirmed or ratified by a symbolic act. And so, you know, my son's getting married in, in seven weeks. I just had the privilege of officiating a wedding two weeks ago. Whenever one per, two people are married, you know, each person takes a ring uh, and they slide it on the finger of the person they're marrying. And the ring, by virtue of its shape, it's a circle. circle has no ending. It signifies, it symbolizes the never-ending nature of the covenant that they're entering into we see that God enters into covenants we see in the old testament God uh, establishes a covenant with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and we and we see that there's there are those are ratified by a symbolic act so with Noah for example what does God do he makes this covenant and he and he establishes it by a rainbow i saw just a couple of days ago someone posted a a, a rainbow here in madison from their their backyard and um, you don't often see the, the full rainbow, the whole thing in its glory. And, and there it was. This is a symbol of the covenant that God has made uh, with His people. Well, the Bible is the history of God's covenantal relationship with His people. See, the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is not a, a handbook on how to live. The Bible is not a moral code. The Bible represents the unfolding drama of, Of redemption. And in each epic, we learn more about God, His salvation, and how it's realized in the person and work of Jesus. In other words, the Bible contains the progressive revelation of God and His salvation plan, and the the discipline of interpreting that unfolding redemption, the plan of God, is called biblical theology. The way of salvation has never changed, it's always been the same by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was that way for the Old Testament saints. Now, they, don't, they didn't know as much about the coming Redeemer as we know. This is what makes those middle chapters of Ephesians so beautiful, the mystery revealed, right? They, what they knew about the coming Messiah was, was known through types and shadows, but they were trusting in God's coming Redeemer. Their faith was in the one who had come to rescue them. So they were saved by faith alone as well. Now, I say that because it's so important because the Ten Commandments were not given as a means to salvation. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law for two reasons. One, because uh, no one has ever kept the law completely. And two, because the law was not given for that matter. Now notice again uh, the second verse, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments were given after... God delivered His people, after God rescued His people. They weren't rules that God's people were to follow in order to belong to Him, in order to become His people. These were the terms in which God would relate to His redeemed people and His redeemed people would relate to God. So here's the first point I want to make this morning. The Ten Commandments were given to an already rescued people. For more than 400 years, the people of Israel were enslaved to the Egyptians. And if you've read uh, the the book of Exodus, you know how this goes. The Egyptians were hard taskmasters, forcing the Israelites to work in grueling ways. They were were merciless. They were relentless in their requirements. But through His servant Moses, God delivered the Israelites by parting the Red Sea, allowing the children of Israel to walk through on dry land, and then afterward the sea would collapse and swallow up. God's enemies. When the Egyptians pursued, the waters closed and swallowed up the the Egyptian armies. Not one of them remained, Exodus 14 tells us. And through that dramatic event, God miraculously demonstrated His faithfulness to His people. They belonged to Him. He belonged to them. God rescued them so that they would obey Him. They didn't obey God so that they would be rescued. This is an important distinction. It's also important to point out that the the exodus event itself, while it is history, in fact, it is the climactic event of Israel's history, it's more than just history. It was a symbol of God's salvation for all ages. Of course, it reveals God's power to save. It reveals the helplessness of those who needed saving. And it revealed that salvation is by grace alone. By God's grace alone, the Israelites were helpless, hopeless, doomed, and enslaved to an oppressive regime, but God the great King intervened and delivered them. Now, this is the case with all those who are saved in any age. We, too, are helpless, hopeless, doomed, and enslaved to an oppressive enemy. We enter the world enslaved to sin, infected with a sin disease. Separated from God. But God delivers us in an event that's more miraculous than the the parting of the Red Sea in the death and resurrection of His Son. And the same is true, by the way, for us. That was true for the Israelites. We don't obey God so that He would rescue us. We obey because He has already rescued us. Obedience to God's commands is not a means to impress God or to get something from God but a way to enjoy the relationship that we have with Him entirely by His grace. And this is actually a very freeing realization. If we believe, if we believe that, that God saves us because of the work we do, it actually leads to all kinds of havoc emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Because what, ha- what happens is whenever we fail and we disobey Him, We become angry at either God or ourselves, because if if we don't get what we want, if we believe that God has not delivered uh, to us what we've asked Him, then we start to ask the question: Well, what have I done wrong? Why isn't God rescuing me? It particularly manifests itself when we when we believe we're actually improving. When uh, we first moved here over two years ago from Southern California, my oldest son and I came out first, and we were here two weeks before any of the rest of the family got here, and um, the rest of the kids had to finish school. And we had some really sweet times. I mean, it started kind of rough, to be honest with you. We, we walk in this house, no furniture, no, no chairs, nothing to sit on, nothing to sleep on. We were able to, to we w- get to Sam's, and we had a friend who was part of CAPTCHA who helped us deliver. Uh, we got a, a one queen-size mattress um, for both of us to sleep on. My son's 6'5". And I'm 6'3". I mean, it didn't go well. Actually, I said 6'2 in the first service. I'm, I'm growing even in between services. But my son, big and long, and here I am. So it was, it was we woke up just mad at each other every morning. Um, but we were able to borrow another mattress. And we had two really great weeks together, experiencing new th- places and new restaurants. But there was one time when um, he did something that I was a little bothered by, and I offered just a gentle corrective. And he got so... Mad at me, so angry, and I was I was really taken aback by this. Like what? what? I mean, why such vitriol? Why such anger? And he said to me, he said, "Dad, you've pointed this out to me several times. You've not noticed any growth that the Lord's made in my life. You've not noticed any progress I've made by the Spirit." And he was right. It was a fitting thing. I had to apologize. I sought his forgiveness. I said, "You know, I've noticed this. I've noticed this, but I haven't verbally commented on that. And for that, I'm sorry." I'm sorry I've not verbally recognized the way that God has been growing you. And it's a fitting thing. It's an okay thing for a son to say to his dad. But when we start to look at God and say, God, you're not noticing the way that I'm growing. You're not noticing my progress. And then we, we add into that the equation that we should get uh, good things from God by our obedience, by what we deserve. It leads, again, we become angry with God because when we don't get away, we say, God, what's wrong? Why aren't you rewarding me? We become angry with ourselves because we keep failing we filled with self-loathing. So it's a very dangerous formula to believe that God rescues us because of our works, when in fact, we actually obey Him from deliverance, not for deliverance, because He has rescued us and made us His own. And that, that actually leads to a sense of security, relief, joy, and confidence in Him. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, Dane Orland writes this There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live for the smile of God, or you can live from it. For a new identity as a son or daughter of God, or from it. For your union with Christ, that is to say, you're working hard to secure this union, or from it. The battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ, that is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. The felt love of Christ is really what brings wholeness, flourishing, shalom, the existential calm that for brief gospel-sane moments settles over you and lets you step in out of the storm of, of worksness, you see for a moment that in Christ you are truly invincible. The verdict is really in. Nothing can touch you. He has made you His own and will never cast you out. Now, not only is that a beautiful quote and, and, and statement consistent with the Scriptures, but it also provides a lens through which we have to see the Ten Commandments. Now, look at verse 3 again, this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, that first commandment, is it's looking back. It's anchored in the first two verses, but it established the foundation for all the rest of the commandments. God is the one who rescued the Israelites. He is the one who delivered them. He is the one who brought them out of slavery. He has claim over them. Now, it might surprise you to know that the creation account that we read about in Genesis 1 That's not the only creation account that has ever existed. In fact, the ancient Near Eastern world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there were all kinds of creation accounts. Uh, In fact, every every sort of uh, religion had their own account of how the world was made. The same was true in Egypt. In Egypt, where the Israelites spent that 400-plus years in captivity, there was a very popular creation story called the Enuma Elish, and it featured the god Marduk. Uh, Not to be confused with Marmaduke if you grew up watching the cartoon in the 80s. But Marduk, who was the god who was said to be the creator of the stars and the moon and so on. And he actually was also said to have created uh, humankind to serve him. And Marduk wasn't the only uh, so-called Egyptian uh, story or Egyptian god story. Egypt was one of the most polytheistic cultures. Poly meaning many and theism god. Egypt had many gods. Gods of the sun and of the earth. Gods of the fields and the sea. um, Gods of lightness and darkness. Gods of fertility. Gods of pleasure. Well, among those false gods, the living God announces that He will not share His glory with another. He will not be co-worshipped with anyone. The God who parted the sea in front of the Israelites who delivered them with his strong right arm, so to speak. That God has no equals and no rivals. In fact, that God scoffs in the face of other so-called gods. This is a theme that Jeremiah would pick up on chapter 10 of his book. He says to the people of Israel, Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at them. And I love this. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. What God is calling His redeemed people to do is to forsake all other so-called gods and to worship and serve Him only. Now, this commandment is comprehensive. This commandment is exhaustive in its scope. It requires so much more than coming to a building once a week and singing praises, so much more than doing certain activities. Here's what it requires. This is our second point this morning. The first commandment demands that that our hearts and lives be oriented around the character, glory, and mission of God. It's so much bigger. It's so much bigger than just calling yourself a Christian. It's so much bigger than just saying, I believe in God. It's about orienting everything we are around the character of God, the glory of God, and the mission of God, which is to make His fame, His name known throughout the nations. To have no other gods before Him, as the commandment reads, doesn't mean that that God is okay with some other gods being behind Him. In other words, it's not as though God's saying, well, I'm okay with being uh, your top priority as long as other gods fall in behind me. No, it means that God has no interest in being one important person among many. It means He alone is the one who stirs our hearts, who who invokes our praise, who elicits our reverence and astonishment, whose authority we honor. To have no other gods before God means that his name, His glory, His fame become our greatest passions in life. So our desire in life is to see God glorified. Is that your driving passion in life? To see God glorified, to see His name extended to the othermost parts of the earth. Now, of course, the command includes and captures loving God. That's really the heart of it. It's a love for God that is both adoration and And action. Even at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, though, we we see that we have a major problem. We see that we have a problem in that we don't always love God more than we love other things. We don't always put God ahead of other things. The truth is, we're tempted to love many other things, become excited about, become passionate about many other things more than we do so about God. Despite His faithfulness to us, we forget about the way that He has loved us and rescued us in the person of Christ, and we let our hearts be drawn away by other things. Career becomes our driving passion. Money, pleasure, the praise of men, the praise of other people. Comfort becomes what really captures our hearts, making sure we're comfortable Whatever we love, fear, delight in, or depend on more than God, that we make a God of. See, the Ten Commandments are both instructive and they're diagnostic. They're instructive, as I mentioned, because they reveal to us the very character of God. They they show us the best way to live. They reveal to us the way of human flourishing. If everybody obey the Ten Commandments... We wouldn't be be experiencing the sort of turmoil and conflict and and unease that we do now. So they reveal to us the the way to live, the, the way of human flourishing. So to reject God's commands is to choose a life of endless struggle. If you want a life of misery, you want a life of huge ups and huge downs, endless unresolved turmoil, nagging guilt. If you want your life to be a soap opera of disappointment and one crushing blow after another, reject God's ways in favor of your own ways. So far from being an outdated list of do's and don'ts, the Ten Commandments instruct us in the best way possible. As J.I. Packer says, they contain the wisdom and priorities everyone needs for relational spiritual and societal blessing, all coming from a loving Heavenly Father who wants the best for His children. The Ten Commandments are instructive, but they're also diagnostic. They diagnose, they expose all the ways that we fail to honor God as God. The law of God is like a—it's kind of like a high-powered mirror. You ever been to, I guess Bed, Bath & Beyond has a huge... I don't know, a whole section of these little mirrors, but you go through a department store or whatever, there are these little round mirrors. And if you stand at a distance, you can't see anything but blurriness. But if you get up very close, they reveal in the most painful way our imperfections, our blemishes, all the things that are wrong. Well, the law is like a high-powered mirror. It reveals those blemishes. But no one would ever go to a department store and take one of those mirrors, and see their imperfections, and start rubbing the mirror all over their face. If they did, they'd probably be kicked out. It's just a weird thing to do, right? And it doesn't help. Well, this is kind of the way that it is with the law. The law diagnoses our problem. It reveals our blemishes, but the law does not provide a fix for our problem. The law doesn't provide a remedy for what ails us. The law just diagnoses our problem for healing, for wholeness. We need something else. We've been talking about over the past few weeks how all the scriptures point to Jesus, and Jacob Dearman did just a terrific job exposing the text. And before that, Pastor Adam a beautiful job explaining how all the scriptures point to Jesus. Well, the Ten Commandments are no different. The Ten Commandments point in maybe the most arresting way possible to Jesus, and I hope to show you that as we continue to work our way through this series. Even even today, the perfect law of God, which we constantly fail to keep, points beyond us to another. Now, here's how this first section does that. It's our, first, our final point this morning. Jesus upholds the first commandment and offers His obedient record to us by faith. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus fulfilled the whole law of God. In fact, Jesus Himself said in the Gospel of Matthew, don't think for a second that I came to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill the law. Paul, the apostle of God, says in Romans 10 that Christ is the culmination of the law. To say that Jesus fulfilled the law means that Jesus fully accomplished everything that was written in the law. That is to say, He perfectly and personally obeyed every single requirement of the law, both in action and in motive and in thought Indeed, fully, Fully satisfied all the requirements of the law, including the very first command, we should have no other gods besides God Himself. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, remember, being even physically weak and being approached by the evil one, and, and Satan said, if, you, if you'll just bow down before me, and what does Jesus say? Jesus said, I will, said, it is written, we shall worship, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Which is a beautiful summary of the first commandment, and one that Jesus obeyed at every moment of his life. And by believing in him, we're actually credited with his obedience. Now, it doesn't mean, and this is important to say, it doesn't mean that because we're credited with the obedience of Christ, that we no longer need to care about our own obedience our own personal practical obedience. No, we are the people of God, the people that God has redeemed through the work of Jesus. The unfolding drama of redemption that we talked about earlier reached a new era, so to speak, with the birth of the church and the sending of the Holy Spirit. We are God's covenant people, the church. And just like we pointed out earlier, because He has made us His own, because He has rescued us, because He has redeemed us and bought us at great price, freed us from the bondage to sin, we worship Him and we obey Him. And now in this period known as the last days, which is the the period between the coming and the ministry of Christ uh, to the return of Christ, when we have the presence of the Spirit, by the Spirit's power we make every effort humbly and prayerfully to obey all of God's commands. All the commands that reflect the character of God. And the Ten Commandments that Paul kind of summarizes as the law of Christ or the law of love. We take great pains to have no other God before the God of the Bible. But when we fail, we have an advocate. When we allow another God, and we'll talk about the idols of our hearts next week, we allow an idol of the heart to become the object of our worship. We have an advocate. We have one who has gone before us and obeyed perfectly in our place so that our disobedience neither defines us nor destroys us. And get this in Christ, if you're in Christ this morning, you put your faith in Jesus, you've turned to Christ in faith, God sees you as totally and completely obedient. God sees you as faithful to the Ten Commandments because of the work of Christ. In Christ, we are totally forgiven all of our sins. Jesus Christ kept the whole law of God for God's people, offering Himself as the perfect sacrifice. He was raised for the dead as evidence of our justification, which means that Jesus Christ is alone worthy of our praise. Now you say, well, wait a second, how can you say that? Didn't we just read where God said that you shall have no other gods before me? How can you say Jesus Christ alone is the one worthy of our praise? It's an interesting statement, I have to admit, given what we just read in the Ten Commandments. How could Jesus alone be the only object of our praise? The Gospel of John, Jesus says to his followers that they should worship and serve God only. And then he also says you should worship and serve me only. In fact, there's that one very controversial and very difficult passage where Jesus says, unless a, man, unless a person hates father and mother, son or daughter because of me, he cannot be my disciple, he cannot serve me. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't mean we should hate our own family members. He's talking about, comparatively speaking, our love for, our reverence for, our allegiance to Christ should be such that every other affection and allegiance, it doesn't compare, it's almost like hatred. But how could Jesus say that you worship God only and you worship and serve me only? Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's actually a claim. Jesus is saying, I am God. Remember what we saw as our study in John's Gospel, Jesus said repeatedly, I and the Father are one. He said to his disciples, if you've seen me, then you've actually seen the Father. He said, I am in my Father and my Father is in me. When Jesus interprets the command, he doesn't say, oh, you've heard that that you should have no other gods but the God of the Bible, but let me just make one exception here. Yeah, but add me to that list. Worship me too. That's not what he's saying. Jesus says, no gods apart from God, namely me. The late biblical theologian Edmund Clowney writes this, The first commandment demands devotion to the one God as it is expressed in devotion to the Son, who alone shows us the Father. No other gods means no other name than the name of Jesus. In no way does this detract from the Father. To the contrary, anyone who fails to worship Christ cannot be worshiping the one true God. There's a a rhythm that the The Orthodox Presbyterian Church has the OPC, which has been around, I don't know, maybe 50 years or so. And I know we're a Southern Baptist church, and I love what we do here. But there's this rhythm that I really appreciate. Every single service, every worship service, every gathering, it has this very pronounced rhythm. It goes like this, guilt, grace, gratitude. That's the flow of the service, guilt, grace, gratitude. It's a reminder of our own brokenness, our own fallenness, our own rebellion. And then, of course, we point to and accentuate and highlight and celebrate the grace of God in Christ. In fact, it's a rhythm that really we employ too. We just don't use those words. The grace of God in Christ, the salvation that is ours in Christ. And then that leads to gratitude, worship, praise, and celebration. This is the rhythm that's going to become increasingly obvious as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We're going to see The Ten Commandments are going to expose. We're going to be exposed. When I was a chaplain for a Division I men's basketball team back in the uh, early 2000s, when when a, a new recruit would come and they would watch him, they'd say, well, he's going to be exposed. This is going to be exposed. He can't go to his left. He can't do whatever. He can't shoot on the move. The Ten Commandments are going to expose us. We're going to see our own weaknesses, our sin tendencies, our foibles, our setbacks, so on. But then we're going to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who is himself the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. So we're going to see each week that even though we have these Ten Commandments, there's actually much to be encouraged about. The one who actually fulfilled the Ten Commandments, who satisfied God's perfect standard in our place. So it's not just going to be do, do, do. It's going to be a reminder about what's been done in Jesus Christ. And that hopefully will lead us to, as we consider all of this in the grand story of the Bible, lead us to, tremendous gratitude, great and renewed, hopefully renewed appreciation in God's plan of salvation, the unfolding drama of redemption, which finds its fulfillment in the person work of Jesus Christ, the one we continue to praise and worship even now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your word, and we know that it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, And Father, we ask this morning that you would pierce our hearts with it. We ask that you would indeed expose our own sinfulness. Expose those areas, those secret areas that we want to remain unaddressed. But give us the grace to run to Jesus. And help us to to appreciate and to recognize and to understand and to revel in and to rest in your love for us in Christ Jesus. What a great privilege it is to know this morning that we are forgiven. We have not always put you first. We have at times put other gods ahead of you. But your forgiveness is full and free. And for every person who's here this morning who's in Christ, we know, Lord, that we stand before you justified, perfect, beloved, celebrated, adopted, and even, dare I say, enjoyed by you. Father, give us the grace to believe it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.